0: What does the invention of paper money in Europe have to do with the future of cryptocurrency? Stay tuned to this podcast to explore the connection. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard.
1: This week on the podcast, we have a special repeat guest, and he is one of my favorite people in finance. His name is Michael Mobison, and he is the chief strategist at Credit Suisse First Boston. Uh, he used to work with Bill Miller over at Leg Mason, who actually very recently just uh, bought himself private. Uh, I, I really love the work of Mobison. I think he is a unknown or relatively unknown rock star. I find the way he, he looks at the world, the framework uh, he creates to understand finance understand how investors behave uh, to be just absolutely fascinating and tremendously tremendously insightful uh, he is one of the few guests that we have invited back for a second time and truth be told our first interview I was pretty uh meh is probably the the nicest thing I could say about my own performance he's always awesome and and I think you'll really enjoy this so With no further ado, here is my conversation with Michael Maubasant. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Michael Maubasant. He is the head of global financial strategies at Credit Suisse. He has quite the curriculum vitae. Previously, he was chief investment strategist at Leg Mason Capital Management working with famed investor Bill Miller. He's been a professor at the Columbia School of Business since 1993, where he's won numerous awards for teaching excellence, uh, as well as being named to the Institutional Investors All-Star Research Team. He is the author of a number of books, most recently, The Success Equation, Untangling Skill and Luck in Business, Sports, and Investing. And he is also the author of some of the most interesting white papers in all of finance. Michael Mobison, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. Awesome to be with you. So you and I know each other for a while, and I've been a fan of the, the sort of work you've done on a number of things. Let, let's start out with a quote of yours and, and see where you want to go with this. You said perhaps the single greatest error in the investment business is a failure to distinguish between the knowledge of a company's fundamentals and the expectations implied by market price. What exactly do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so in order to make money in markets, you have to have a belief that's different than what the market believes. And the general tendency we all have is if things are going well, we wanna buy. And we know that of course from aggregate investor behavior. And when things are going poorly, we wanna sell. But the way to make money is to have a view that's different than the market. And, and the metaphor that works the most vividly is the racetrack, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a handicapper and you want to make money, there are two things that are important. One is how fast the horse is going to run. We'll call that the fundamentals. And the second are the odds in the tote board. And the way you make money is not picking the winner. The way you make money is picking mispriced odds. And so that idea really carries over to the world of investing. So I think it's most of us as investors, we sort of blur those two things. And I'll mention a kind of a funny story. I, I was in a, a big money management organization. They said, Is there anything we could do that would be radical you know, in terms of how we approach the job? I said, Here's an idea for you have half your analysts only work on fundamental stuff, right? One guy just works on Apple's future, you know, sales and profits and so forth. And then have the other guy just work on the expectations. What does a $100 stock price mean for performance? And then bring the two people together at the very last minute and see what happens, right? Because the problem is we tend to meld those two things. And I would say the great investors are those that really do think about those things separately. And I think it's a, it's a real challenge for the rest of us. Again, things are going well, you want to buy it. Things are going badly, you want to sell it. And you don't make those distinctions the way you should.
1: What was the reaction to that proposal? Well, they kind of they kind of said, oh, that's kind of a cool idea. Uh,
0: yeah, see you later. <laughs> so it so, didn't go very far. <laughs> the
1: interesting <laughs> thing is when I when I speak with the quants, when I speak with investors with a mathematical basis, they tend to do pretty much what exactly what you're saying, is they have an understanding of what the fundamental metrics are. And then their quantitative overlay is, here's what we've seen in price relative to value, relative to book, relative to all these metrics. Hey, these, this little subgroup Looks wildly mispriced. Exactly. So I think the quants, I mean, this
0: is another, I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but I think the quants obviously have some of this captured in the way they approach the world, which makes enormous amounts of sense. The question is, are there things that fundamental analysts can do that quants can't do? Are there th- nuances they can pick up that might be, it? and that's an interesting sub- separate conversation, but right, the, the virtue of quants or even even basic rules for buying and selling are precisely you take the emotion out and that you're making those two, the the, quanti- the fundamentals and expectations two separate sets.
1: So anyone who's systematic, anyone who, invo- who is using some form of screening in order to help determine, anybody who's using, uh, it's almost a cliche these days, but a factor or a dimension, small cap, value, momentum, quality, etc. they're using the math in order to help identify that that golf aren't they that's right i mean the one thing this is a little bit off
0: barry but i think this is interesting so uh one of the things i think a lot about is this idea of freestyle chess i don't know if we've talked about this before we have you you, you may know this so you know kasparov loses deep blue in 1997 Mm -hmm. and so machine beats man fine but shortly thereafter what what emerged was something called freestyle chess that means you and i are playing a match but we can avail ourselves of whatever aids we want so we can Mm -hmm. run computer programs you can call your lifeline to your grandmaster buddy or whatever it is and it turns out these freestyle teams are better than the programs by themselves, or of course, any man or person, right? So man plus machine beats man or machine, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. And there's, there's you know, Kevin Kelly, who's, you know, just wrote a new book called The Inevitable. He's got a little section on this in the book. So this to me is a very intriguing model to say, are there cases where most of the time you default to the quantitative approach or to the program, but... For every now and then, if you have a good feel for the game, you can step in and do something that's a little bit different that adds value. Now, that's an open, open question whether that's true in investing. But to me, that's a really intriguing model for thinking about what where uh, sort of humans and, and quantitative techniques may merge uh, in the future.
1: Well, we saw in late 2007 and again uh, a couple of years ago where all the quants kind of were walking in lockstep and following their programs and some sea change took place whether it was the financial crisis or something more recent, and even the math still got shellacked. Sometimes the ground rules change sufficiently that, hey, whatever your methodology is, is going to at least temporarily be wildly out of favor, which leads me to an interesting question. Um, So much of this stuff is not particularly intuitive. In Think Twice, you use the phrase counterintuition. What is counterintuition? By the way, I'm not even sure that's a word. <laughs> my, my editor said that would be a good subtitle. But you no, know,
0: counterintuition, the, the big idea of think twice is when we're faced with certain types of situations, our minds are naturally going to want to think about the problem one way When there's a better way to think about it right and so counterintuition is saying hey can I check myself and say I should think about it more effectively let me give an example it's a very famous one comes from Danny Kahneman who obviously you know great psychologist won the Nobel Prize He he was our guest last week yeah how was that I got to listen to
1: it it? he's awesome right there's a fascinating story I'll share with you about about him in uh, in the podcast portion
0: the idea is the, it ins- calls the inside versus the outside view. So Barry, if I give you a problem, it could be anything. It could be how long will it take you to remodel your kitchen? How much will it cost? Or how will this asset class do? The classic way to think about it, see if this resonates, is you gather tons of information, you combine it with your inputs and you project into the future, right? And... Left to our own devices, that's how we solve problems. The outside view is by by contrast is thinking about your problems as an in instance of a larger reference class. Mm-hmm. Basically asking what happened when other people were in this situation before. Now it's a very unnatural way to think. A, because you have to leave aside this cherished information, and B, you have to find and avail yourself of this
1: reference class. Take yourself out of yourself and it's, look at it exactly. objectively. And-
0: Let me give you an example. It's a trivial one. Let's say you are remodeling your kitchen, right? So you sit down with a contractor, you pick out all stuff and you're all set to go and you got a budget. And so the work starts and your neighbor strolls over, say, hey, Barry, what's going on? You go, oh, yeah, we're remodeling our kitchen. It's going to cost us X and it will be done by this date. What does your neighbor say to you knowing nothing about the details, right? Something like double the money, double the time or right. something along those lines, right? You have all the inside view, right? You have all the inside view. He's just doesn't know anything about the, but he's got the outside view. So the point is that psychologists have demonstrated that introducing the outside view almost always, almost invariably improves the quality of decisions. That's a classic example where your mind naturally goes one way, Counterintuition would tell you let's avail ourselves of this other information and we're going to make more accurate forecasts.
1: And, and the story Danny Kahneman tells is when him and a group of psychologists were working on a textbook, and these are folks who specialize in cognitive errors and foibles of of the mind. Uh, they ended up taking far beyond what their their consensus was, and it it was it was right uh, right in the sweet spot of what you're talking about. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Michael Mobison. He is head of global financial strategies of Credit Suisse and author of numerous books, most recently The Success Equation: Untangling Skill and Luck in Business, Sports, and Investing. I love that title. It's so it's so fascinating. Let Let's pull a um a phrase out of that book and and have you discuss that. I really enjoyed, quote, our love of stories and our need to connect cause and effect leads to all sorts of problems. The blend of those two ingredients leads us to believe that the past was inevitable and to underestimate what else might have happened. So obviously that applies to investing, but it also applies to sports and business talk to that a little
0: absolutely bit. it's a it is fascinating and Barry you know when you when when an author puts down a book you you've been through the same process there may be a couple ideas that keep banging around in your head mm-hmm. and for me this is one of those ideas um The work here was done by a professor named Michael Gazaniga, who's a neuroscientist, and and he did famous work on so-called split-brain patients. So these are people who have debilitating epilepsy. They failed all their treatments. And as a last-ditch effort, they sever the corpus callosum, the bundle of nerves between the two hemispheres of the brain. Left and right hemisphere. Left and right hemisphere. And what allows the researchers to do is to figure out what's going on in each part of your brain. And to make a long story short, what they found in absolutely fascinating research is in your left hemisphere, which is where your language resides, there's a module they now call the interpreter. And the job of the interpreter is to close cause and effect loops. So I throw an effect at you, and this little module in your brain is gonna is gonna try to figure out how to close the, close the the loop, right? So, you know, we know the future is buzzing with possibility. right? Everybody gets that. But once an event occurs, all of us effortlessly and naturally create a narrative to explain that outcome, right? Your interpreter. And when that happens, two things kick in. The first is hindsight bias, is we start to believe that we knew what was going to happen. With a greater probability than we actually did, and by the way, I cannot even count how many people have called me or emailed me to say, "I knew Brexit was going to happen." So I say to them immediately, "Where did you write that down? Right. Where's your pile of money from your wealth you built?" Right. Bill- right? So I hear all- <laughs> this about the financial
1: crisis. So right. oh, anybody could have told this was gonna- right. Well, why were you long and highly <laughs> exposed to banks? home builders, and mortgage (laughs) lenders right into the collapse if you knew it was coming. Precisely.
0: And the second thing that happens, which is related, is this idea called creeping determinism. You start to believe that what happened was the only thing that could have happened, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a little module in your brain. Now, the tie back to the skill and luck stuff is that the, the interpreter really knows nothing about luck. So if something good happens... Your mind is going to assume that something good was behind it, and if something bad happens again, your mind's going to make. So this is as fascinating. You know, we're in a world that's got a lot of randomness, a lot of luck, and we've got a little module in our brain that really struggles to understand what happened. So, so to me, the idea, and you, I know you know one of your guests is Phil Tetlock, who's sure. terrific, and you know Phil talks a lot about this idea of counterfactuals as being being open, obviously, to future different uh, futures, but also recognizing that the past we lived through was only one of many possible paths. That's that's a very unnatural thing to think about. But it's also a very fertile thing to think about in terms of really understanding the complexity of the world.
1: Warren Buffett's partner, Charlie Munger, is famous for saying, invert, always invert. When you're looking at a situation, assume one of the main variables is either zero or 180 degrees from what it is, and then see how things play out. And suddenly, you end up with a very different set of possible outcomes. Uh, and And the past may not have been as as inevitable as, as some people have suggested. Uh, there there are a number of things related to this that are, that are really fascinating but but let's stick with the the luck issue and and let's try an inversion so so one of your comments was luck is a residual it's what's left over after you've subtracted skill from the outcome so let's invert that uh if after a decade i think it's safe to say that good luck and bad luck should probably cancel out if you're a business person or an athlete or a uh uh, or, or an investor, maybe not a hundred percent. There'll be some outliers, but for a lot of them, so can we say that after luck cancels out, all you're left with is skill? I think that's
0: a fair statement. Um, now, I would say when you think about luck, there are two different sort of categories where with luck is more independent, a little bit like you described, and that would be athletes or or even money management, probably uh, re- realistic. But there are other other elements about luck that has a lot of a path dependence. So what happened before affects what happens next and so mm-hmm. forth. And when you think about the success of music sales or book sales or any sort of social products, those social effects are actually, uh, you make it a, a little bit of a different dynamic. So- yeah the, yeah. the answer is yes. The over The longer the sample size, uh, the greater the sample size, the more we can we could get a signal from skill and less important luck is. So there, yeah, there's no question that's the case.
1: So indexing is as big today as it's ever been. I think Vanguard is now coming up on $4 trillion. BlackRock is there already. Mm-hmm. Is it safe to say that a lot of the public has looked at this process and said, you know, I, I'm kind of done with stock pickers, I'm just going to index and not have to worry about it anymore. Is that a driving factor here? I think there's no question about that.
0: And you know, for most people, that's an absolutely correct prescription. Now, you know, that's an argument you can you can't take to the extreme. In other words, not every single person can index. There has to be some active management in some way, shape, or form to basically. And by the way, they're creating a positive externality, which is basically efficient markets or good prices that the indexers can take advantage of. But for most people, that's really relevant. And you know, I was just looking at the numbers the other day. I mean, I know that Jack Bogle started the you know his index fund in the seventies, but really, for all intents and purposes, it really wasn't even going till sort of late eighties, early nineties, right? So this is a fairly rele- uh, new
1: phenomenon we're seeing. And and so. the bulk of the assets at, at a place like Vanguard uh, really have have come post financial crisis, right?
0: Exactly. So. So, you know, it's interesting, and the other thing to think about when you think about that dimension is that, you know, active investing is a zero-sum game in the sense that uh, for any particular year, the winners, positive alpha, have to be offset by losers, negative alpha, right? Just mathematically, Mm -hmm. that has to be the case. So it's interesting if if you say sort of an analogy is sort of the poker table, right? So we have guys sitting around the poker table playing one night of poker. You know, if the people who are the less capable are walking out and right. indexing, right, in effect. Who's left sitting at the table? The most skilled the players. The most skilled players, right, so. So, <laughs> so
1: let's talk a little bit about the paradox of skill. And this is, it
0: sets right up the paradox of skill. So the paradox of skill, which is not my idea, but I gave it that name, says that at, when activities have both skill and luck, which is most stuff in life, as skill increases, luck becomes more important, which doesn't seem to make sense. But Very the way counterintuitive. To, way to think about this is luck has, a skill has two dimensions. One is absolute skill. But the second dimension is relative skill. And that's really what it's about when you're thinking about outperforming others. And, and what we've also seen is a collapse of relative skills. So say a fancy way to say it's a standard deviation of skills mm-hmm. gone down. So one example is in batting average in baseball. Right, The, the average batting average doesn't change all that much because it's pitch, pitcher-hitter interaction, but the standard deviations collapse. And as a consequence, there aren't these sort of extreme hitters. Uh, no more Ted Williams. No more Ted Williams.
1: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, my special guest today is Michael Maubassant. He is the head of global financial strategies at Credit Suisse, previously chief investment strategist at Leg Mason, working with Bill Miller, a professor of finance at Columbia Business School and author of numerous books. Let's talk a little bit about how the great investors think. And again, another quote of yours I'm going to pull, what
0: is being wrong?
1: Teach us about being right.
0: It's a fascinating question. And by the way, there's a great book by Catherine Schultz basically being wrong of that title. Mm-hmm. Here's the interesting thing, Barry. We wake up every day and think that what we believe is right. What's in your head is what you think is right. It's course. what gets Although, you out of bed and allows you to cross you the street. Otherwise you wouldn't have it, right? Right. So then you wander into the world and you're confronted with the reality that all the stuff you believe may not be right. And the real big question is, how do you deal with that, right? And so there are some, if, I, if you and I disagree on something, there might be some ways I, I say either Barry doesn't understand the facts, and if I just tell him the facts, he's going to come around to my point of view. It could be Barry's not quite smart enough to understand right. my nuanced point of view, or it could be Barry's turned his back. You know, he doesn't get it anymore, and, you know, he's being, mm-hmm. in a sense, almost evil about this thing. So I think this idea of of recognizing, especially in the world of investing, right, where where so important so important because what happens is i mean what is what is rational being uh what does it mean to be rational and the answer is that your beliefs map accurately to the world that's a real challenge if the world's constantly changing because that Mm -hmm. requires you to change your own views and most of us truth be told are fairly cognitively lazy we'd rather just sort of keep doing what we're doing so that to me when you say what are the characteristics that's a big one and being wrong teach you about being right is to say, I need Your to understand, yeah, I need, my map is off and I need to adjust it. The other thing I'll say, you know, you mentioned Charlie Munger a few moments ago, you know, Charlie Munger's got this great quote says, we got, we did well, Berkshire Hath- Hathaway, less by being brilliant and more by not screwing up a lot. Right. And there's a little of that effect as well. So just by not making as many mistakes the over time, issue the unforced error, again. yeah, you, you,
1: you will do better over time. So I think that's another aspect of the not being wrong uh, dimension. You know, I'm fascinated now that we're in the midst of the political silly season, the idea of cognitive dissonance, that when a person has a wrong map, and you confront them with incontrovertible facts, hey, uh, crime is at decade lows, the number of police killed are at record lows, uh, relative to any time over the past, you know, uh, 30, 40 years, how... The brain manages to either ignore the data or somehow deal with it, because otherwise their whole worldview uh, falls apart. What is that? Ha- how does that manifest itself well, with
0: investors? Yeah, I think I think that people prefer not to change their view, right? And uh, so they don't even want to entertain the evidence. But you know, the, if you if you said you know of, of Kahneman Tversky's biases, you know the one that probably shows up. Well, maybe not the most, but certainly the top three would be confirmation bias, right? Which Mm -hmm. is once you've made a decision, you may have agonized over it, but once you've made a decision, you seek information that confirms your point of view and you disavow, dismiss, or discount, as you said, disconfirming evidence. And it's a very natural thing for all of us to do. And again, I think the characteristics of great investors are those who remain actively open-minded, who remain open to the evidence and who are willing and able to change their minds when the evidence suggests that they should. By the way, in life, certainly with politicians, consistency is valued as a good thing mm-hmm. and if you're changing your view you're called a flip-flopper right, right. in investing if you're a flip-flopper you if you're doing the right thing that's what you need to do it's right. not even a question of whether it's a good thing or bad so so that's another you know that's that whole confirmation bias and this idea of consistency and the fact is once you most people have come up with a point of view they'd much rather just stick with what they're doing than to change their views
1: e- even if it's money losing even if it's money losing that, that that's quite a, that's quite astonishing so uh, that that leads to a, a related question. So what are some of the bigger misconceptions uh, about how investors should approach the market? What should they be doing that they're not? And what shouldn't they be doing that they are? You
0: know, the first thing I would say, Baron, we talked a bit about this. For For most people, the answer is... Uh, that they should probably be using index funds or some sort of low-cost approaches, having appropriately diversified portfolios, you know, doing all the things you're supposed to do, rebalancing and tax efficiency and so forth. right? So for, for for a vast majority of people, that's probably the right way to go. If you're going to be an active manager, I would say the key thing is to think about what is your source of edge? What do you truly believe that you can do that's different than others? right? And, and, and then organize your investment firm in order to do that. And then finally, think a lot about portfolio construction, how you put together your bets in a way that's effective. Um, so those, are, you know, it's, it's really about having a really good process. It's also, as we were sp- speaking a moment ago, it's about understanding and managing or mitigating the behavioral biases that are going to inevitably show up. So There's
1: I like no, way to say, or, no way to avoid them. I don't you, think
0: there is, but you try to weave this into your process. Maybe checkpoints, we'll call them, or stop points where you say, hey, am I thinking about this properly? And the final thing I'll say, which is a big issue, is that are you in an... In an investment organization or any kind of organization, that really is helping you versus hindering you. And, and I think that this is something, again, Charlie Ellis has talked a lot about, is this business versus profession, right? When, mm-hmm. when people start getting driven by raising assets under management or selling the hot product versus delivering excess returns, that
1: changes the nature of the basic proposition. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Michael Mobison. He is of Credit Suisse and author of numerous books on investing, uh, human behavior, psychology. Let Let's talk a little bit about emotions and decision making. And since since you mentioned Danny Kahneman, let Let's start with with one of the uh, the big subjects. Uh, and again, quote from you: We all operate with certain heuristics, rules of thumb. And predictable biases that emanate from those heuristics discuss. Yeah. So, you know, Kahneman
0: and Tversky, uh, well, Kahneman made these inc- two incredible contributions to our understanding. One is the heuristics and biases, which we'll talk about in just a second, and the other is prospect theory. So, how human behaviors depart systematically from what economic theories would Me- suggest.
1: Meaning people aren't the perfect profit seeking rational machines that economists describe them as. Precisely.
0: And the fact that they depart in ways that are fairly systematic and predictable. So the heuristics and biases literature is really interesting because it says that, as you point out, the word is rules of thumb. So we all op- we operate with lots of rules of thumb for life. And what's good about rules of thumb? The answer is they save you a ton of time and they're often right. Keep so, you alive on the
1: savanna. Keep not you alive on the savanna,
0: right? So that's all good. Uh, but the problem is that these heuristics often come with blind spots or these biases that can lead to suboptimal decisions. Let's talk about a couple of the big daddies of these biases. Uh, the first one is overconfidence, mm-hmm. and by the way, that tends to be more expressed than males and
1: females. So just there's, that's one where there's a, tend to be a difference in gender. There's a lot of data that shows that female fund managers tend to outperform male fund managers because they are not afflicted with. The same sort of testosterone poisoning that leads to over <laughs> overconfidence. Exactly. So, how does overconfidence manifest? And you've already given a
0: little clue on that, right? There are two things. One is we t- we tend to project in uh, ranges that are too narrow. We're, we're, we we think we understand the future much better than we actually do, mm-hmm. right? So that's one er- that's one aspect of it. The second is where you had the male-female study you just cited is that men tend to trade a lot more, right? So they think they know what's going on, so they're much more active, and that just chews up performance in the form of costs. So overconfidence, how do you mitigate that? The answer would be using things like base rates, which we talked about before, just saying what what is the distribution of outcomes? What does it look like historically? And if I overlay that on what I'm thinking about today— Is a reason for me to stretch my expectations? So that's overconfidence and that's a really a big one. And and even for money managers, don't trade too much. Those are, that's a, that's a second one. Uh, Framing is another really big one. And so the story here, Barry, is if I present a story to you with mathematically this one way, mathematically, Mm -hmm. and then I present the same mathematical puzzle to you a different way, I can systematically get you to select one or the other. Right? And that just doesn't
1: make any sense because if people are actually just doing the math, they won't do it that way. So, so let's let's take a look at an example of that. The one that I recall is the um hypothetical uh, illness, where if a doctor says bad news you have a fatal disease, good news is a surgery, and here's the variable if the if this doctor says sixty five percent chance of survival if you have <laughs> the surgery, a huge number of people do it, and the control group gets the Bad news, fatal uh, disease, good news. Hey, there's a surgery. One in three people don't survive the surgery, but, you know, it's the only choice we have. And that generates a totally different uh, acceptance rate. Precisely. So we're not...
0: We're not doing the math, right? We're reacting as, with our affect, our emotions.
1: Because two out of three and one out of three are same essentially thing. the same numbers. If, if it's one side is two out of three and the alternative is one out of three, it's the same transaction. Precisely.
0: So now you think about the world, to go out in the world and say... How often are these framing effects influencing my own decisions? And you would have to guess that it's a pretty substantial amount of the time. So can we all systematically or be good at translating these different frames into more mathematical or more appropriate frameworks so allow us to make the right decisions. And it goes back to our discussion a few moments ago, also about storytelling, right? If there's a, a little causality, and by the way, I mean, I was talking to a physician about the same thing. He, sa- he said, you know, if I have a treatment that's 50-50 in my office. Some guy comes in with affliction, 50-50. And he goes, if I want the guy to use this, here's what I say. I say, Barry, it's 50-50. Do you understand that? And the guy not you know, the patient nods his head. I say, great. Last guy who's doing the treatment is doing great, and, Do that's you want, the right? frame, and the guy's right? like, so the sample N of one, right? Sample size of one, right. and 90% of people will go for it, right? And if he says, no, Barry, the last guy was doing it. Didn't, didn't work out. Didn't go well. out so well, right? Then, you know, basically they all so it's it's this tagline, right? E- Which is even relevant.
1: <laughs> even though the numbers are the same, hey, it's a coin toss. Mm. Right. That 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 right. one example, um, you know, that that kind of goes back to back to Danny Kahneman. The whole issue of anchoring, if we toss out a number high enough when you're starting the negotiation, everybody is magically drawn right? because you're trying to make sense of that number and your brain locks in on it. Yeah,
0: and anchoring is another one I was going to mention, and I do this with my students at Columbia Business School, and it's, it's awesome, right? So I say to them, very first day of class, I say, write down the last four digits of your phone number, right? So every no problem, kids do that. And I say, second question, I got this from Danny directly. Uh, the number of doctors in Manhattan, borough of Manhattan, higher or lower than that number, right? And they usually, they know it's going to be a little bit higher. And I say, write down your estimate of the number of doctors. And just as predictable as night follows day, the people who have high phone number, last for digits high, guess many more doctors than the people with low digits on their phone number, right? And so a couple of things should be obvious about that. Number one is they, the students know there's no relationship between their mm-hmm. phone number and the number of doctors. And had I asked those same questions in reverse order, Tell me the number estimate of doctors and then tell me your phone number, you'll get a totally different answers. So right. you know that this is an effect. And I think the point that, that Danny Kahneman makes is that this is fairly pernicious in the sense that you can do an hour lecture on anchoring and do another experiment on it and it still works. Right. Really? So in other words, it's like your mind, it's a really hard one for your mind to get around. And you mentioned it, you know, MA. I mean, this shows up 52-week highs, high levels for the markets, all these, you know, round numbers for the Dow, mm-hmm. all these sorts of things show up you know, what does it, what does it mean? Uh, the answer is basically nothing, but it, it has these sort of, uh, these anchoring effects. So yeah, that's another one. So, so there's a very rich literature on this. And again, I say to people really important to understand it. Uh, and then as important is to try to think about, are there ways, again, can I offset these forces? What is the antidote to overconfidence, to framing, to anchoring, and how do I try to try to bring those to bear when I need to, to make good decisions?
1: So, Let's talk about one of my pet peeves, which which you have discussed uh, many times, which is uh, I get miffed every time someone is on TV and blaming uncertainty for the economy, the stock market, for whatever. Um, I, I always think that's a dodge. And I really like the way you described it, uh, talking about whether or not the underlying distribution of outcomes is undefined uh, and, and what the risk distribution looks like. In other words, when you spin a roulette wheel or roll a pair of dice, you may not know what numbers are going to come up, but the set of possible outcomes is well known in advance. What is it about uncertainty that leads people to so totally misunderstand that? Yeah, I don't know. And I think that, you know, this is, by the way, this
0: concept that you've articulated came from Frank Knight. So it's been an idea that's been around for- Mathematician? Yeah, I I think he was an economist, you Mm -hmm. know, 80, 90 years ago. So it's been around for a long time. And, you know, I think it's a debate of, you know, sort of an ongoing debate among economists and philosophers and so forth. But no, exactly what you said. So risk is this idea that you don't know the outcome, but you know all the possible, uh, as you said, to rule that wheel or the turn of a card or what have you. And uncertainty is where we don't know the outcome, but we don't really know what the underlying line distribution. So that's a in, in character a very, very different thing. Like a war invasion of war. Iraq is a good exactly. example. Exactly, But there's some interesting, I mean even some of these things you know Nassim Taleb is very well known for talking about things like black swans but, you know, in, in reality, most things in life uh, are really not in the black swan realm. They're more in the gray swan realm. So, for example, earthquakes, you know, they follow power law. You can't really predict them. But we know what the distribution looks like, right? So, you, you know, okay, so, that, so you have a sense of what's going on. So the question is whether these things are, are, are they practical in your day-to-day life? I, I think the answer to that is yes. But the second thing, uh, and also I think this is a, a, an issue that we're, we, we're in agreement on, is if ask the question, are markets risky or are markets uncertain? Now, if they're risky, we can trot out a bunch of mathematics to model them. If they're not, or if they have components of uncertainty, then we're not using the right tools. And I think I would just basically say most of standard finance is based on normal distributions. Mm-hmm. Whenever you utter phrases like alpha, beta, standard deviations, yeah, right? Know, you're definitely. using the language of risk to describe a system which may have elements and maybe big elements of uncertainty. So that to me is another really interesting disconnect. Um, and look, it may work 99% of the time, but that 1% may be really uh, challenging. So I think you're right. And like you said, I mean, uncertainty is a phrase, it's a catch-all, right? So it basically means I don't know what's going on. You throw it into uncertainty. But, but I think that dist- I found that distinction at least personally to be a useful one to make as, as I try to navigate the world. We've
1: been speaking with Michael Mobison, Head of Global Strategies at Credit Suisse, author of such books as The Success Equation, Think Twice, and More Than You Know. Uh, if people want to find your writings, where's the best place for them to, to either get your white papers or uh, any of your other writings? Um, well, I have a
0: website, which is michaelmobison.com. So mm-hmm. you have to probably look up the spelling, but if you Google it, you'll find it probably one way or another. And um, the other thing is probably Twitter is another, you know, at MJ Mobison. And so a bunch of the stuff tends to find its way onto Twitter one way or another. So those would probably be the two best sources.
1: If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things uh, decision-making and cognitive. Mm -hmm. Be sure and follow my daily column on Bloomberg.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast portion. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for doing this. You know, you're one of our few repeat guests, and I listened to the first, uh, first podcast you and I did. You were literally one of the first dozen or so podcasts. And I have to tell you, I was awful, but you were great. Oh, so I, so um, I, I would like to think that in the ensuing 100 podcasts, and <laughs> the ensuing two years, I've developed some skill at shutting up, listening, and and asking questions, although that's arguable. This, there's a lot of questions that, that we missed. I want to jump back to some of them. But before I do, I have to come back to the uncertainty meme. So I've been using your definition, which is based on the earlier mathematical definition. But the footnote to that that I wanted to share with you is the reason, my belief as to why the reason people fall back on it is we talk about how our expectations map or don't to reality. My belief is that most people's 360 degree in time and space worldview doesn't map remotely close. There are just little areas where almost accidentally it's right. And we lie to ourselves so successfully that we understand. Otherwise, how do you even cross the street? So there is this bit of subconscious self-deception that allows us to operate under normal circumstances. And there are moments of terror when it's revealed to us by the events that we really are completely... um, Poorly mapped, let's call it that. And that's when people trot out the uncertainty defense, and you see it during financial crisis. You see it during geopolitics. It's a way of saying, all right, I will admit temporarily <laughs> that I have no idea what's going on, and soon I'll I'll be able to go back to deluding myself, that I have a good handle. And we see it anytime people talk about the future, the the confidence or lack thereof as to here's what the next six months or a year is going to look like. Phil Tetlock does such a great job on on taking that apart.
0: Absolutely. And you know, there's a there's a great book by Dan Gilbert and uh, Stumbling on Happiness where he makes the point that mentally healthy people are mildly cognitively delusional. So if you are mentally Mentally. healthy, you have a little bubble around yourself thinking that you, you know, know a little bit more than you do. You're a little better looking than you actually are and so forth.
1: Hence all the overconfidence.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and in fact, people who are mildly clinically depressed actually have a much more accurate view of the world than the rest of us. Now,
1: yeah, (laughs) exactly. That's very funny. uh, And that that explains everything that's going on in Bridgewater these days. (laughs) With their radical transparency, I get the sense that they probably are mildly uh, clinically depressed mm-hmm. but have a more accurate view of the world because th- these guys call each other out for everything. It- it's quite amazing. Right, so so the th- what's
0: good about this mild delusion often is it gets people out of bed in the morning, right? right? So in other words, you if you think you're a little better than you are and so forth, you sort of, you, you go at it again. And if you really had a more accurate view of the world, you might just stay in bed. But it is it is this interesting thing. So so the key is for that uh, that mentally healthy condition not to be debilitating your del- decision making. To your point, so you in the world of investing, you do have to have an accurate map. You have to have a, you have, to have a good belief updating system. You have to be actively open minded. You have to consider different points of view, and all those things take a lot of cognitive energy. Mm-hmm. That most of us, truth be told, would rather not expend, or we'd rather do something else. Right, so. So that that's another thing. Who's what dis- distinguishes great decision makers, not just investors, but in sports team managers or in business, from the rest of us? And the answer is, they tend to be those folks that are more malleable cognitively
1: than the rest of us. Uh, in, in super forecasters, Tetlock goes over the group of people who approach decision making almost with a checklist of what do we know to be true, what's relevant, what can we rely on, where are our blind spots. Before they even start the process of making, so so any of their so-called forecasts really are just more educated guesses than the rest of us lazy uh, civilians engage in.
0: Yeah, and, I, and the other thing I liked about super forecasters is that you know they're not the the folks who are making those good forecasts are not geniuses. I mean they're they're brighter than average, but they're not geniuses, right? And like you said, it's much more about their systematic approach to making forecasts. And I think what's encouraging for the rest of us is that many of those behaviors can be emulated. Many of those behaviors can be copied, right? So so there's some hope, at least even if I can't change anybody's IQ, that maybe we can contribute to their quality of their decision-making, right? So
1: embedded decision-making <clears throat> would certainly go a long way. You know, I don't recall if we mentioned this last time, but I wanted to bring it up. Did we talk about Wall Street trading desks and why they're populated with college athletes, that, has, that, uh, has that ever come up with us? No, I don't think so. Uh, have you? Well, so in my experience, I've noticed half of the desks on the street, people played ball in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you witnessed something similar? Yeah. you Are Are you a Long Island guy? Yes. So it seems like a lot of
0: them are lacrosse players. Yes. <laughs> lacrosse.
1: Um, well, usually because uh, uh, there's only so many football, baseball, basketball right. players, and, and right. But you you see a lot of that. You see, so my pet thesis on that is something that is your paradox of skill, which is if you're playing an NCAA sport, pick any division in Division One or Division Two, any any uh, any team can beat any other team on any other given weekend. Mm -hmm. It's not you know you don't end up or you very rarely end up with a dominant team that goes 16 and 0 for the. Uh, you win some you lose some and because of the skill level is fairly uh, that tight range like batting averages a bad call a lucky bounce a, uh, an injury and any team can beat any other team uh, in any given game so after you work your butt off all week <laughs> and then you go and then some bad you know bounce loses the game for you you have to get up monday morning and start your routine all over again right which describes sports as, as accurately as it does working on a trading desk. Yeah.
0: I, I mean, I buy all that, I mean, I think that a lot of this athletes on trading desks is also the fact that uh, they're often, especially around here, East Coast schools for the most mm-hmm. part. Um, also, a lot of alums. So there's sure. a whole little pipeline, you know, in terms of. I and, could see and, and that. And athletes, you know, typically, right? They work together. They were they're used to hard discipline, work, discipline teamwork, etc. sure. You know, all that stuff is true. So, um, yeah, so I think that's all. I buy all that.
1: So, so let's take before we get uh, down to our favorite questions. <laughs> let, let's let's go through some of the questions that that we missed. Um, We've we've talked. Let's talk a little bit about probabilities and and some interesting other factors. Uh, another quote of yours: Success in a probabilistic field requires weighing probabilities and outcomes. That is an expected value mindset. Uh, why is that? Let, let, let's describe that a little bit.
0: You know, it's a well. Because, again, the future has many possible outcomes, and what you're really trying to do is figure out situations where you have some sort of advantage or some sort of an edge, where if you were able to play the world a lot of different times, you would win a lot more times than you would lose. And, and of course, there are scenarios where you would lose, but you would win many more times than you would lose. And the question then becomes, uh, are there ways that we can thoughtfully assign probabilities and outcomes but I think as a structured way of approaching any almost any kind of problem, it works, right? So you might say even a more mundane thing like you know, you're the general manager of the Yankees now, or mm-hmm. the Mets, or whatever it is, and you have to f- find athletes uh, to play on your team. You have to draft somebody. You know, you don't really know what that guy's about. You don't really have a completely known entity. It's a probabilistic view. But if you say guys like this of this age and this ability have played certain way. X percent have done well, right? So that's a probability and some sort of an outcome. And again, there are going to be some variance from that, but that's probably the right way to think about it. And then that allows you to understand how much you should probably be willing to pay for the guy, right? In terms of contract and so forth. I think that idea spills over to most things we we look at. So it's just, it is just getting into this constant discipline to understand I know the range of outcomes, I know the probabilities or some sense of those things. And I'm only going to bet, by the way,
1: when the odds are really good. In other words, I can make a lot of money if I'm right, and I don't lose so much if I'm wrong. That's what made Moneyball so fascinating is the underlying expectations for the probability was not based on provable, quantified data, but all those heuristics and rule of thumbs that had basically dominated baseball for a century. And I found that book, as well as the movie, to be so fascinating, because suddenly you have an industry that wakes up and realizes oh, we've been doing this wrong for a century.
0: Yeah, and Barry, I think that this remains, remarkably, remains fairly pervasive. I think it's less true in Major League Baseball because everyone's read the book and has their analytical staffs. But you look at other professional sports, by the way, you know things like the NFL, where there are big dollars at stake. Mm -hmm. They're still doing some things that don't make a ton of sense. The NHL, right, where it's a much more difficult analytical task. A lot of guys making decisions that don't make a lot of sense. So it continues to be the case out there, generally speaking. And a lot of it, by the way, is that people grew up with a sport. So Mm -hmm. they rely on their own experience. They rely on their own view of the world. It goes back to what we were talking about before. Their frame of reference, right? And they can't expand their views to understand different uh, alternative points of view. And that can be really problematic.
1: Yeah. I am not a huge sports book fan. I find them to be... (laughs) predictable and tedious (laughs) but one that i always recommend to people is the former uh coach of the giants tom conklin Mm. did a book called earn the right to win Mm. and one of his linebackers tells a story and this guy goes on to have an all-star career and he worked with conklin for a few years and a lot of the athletes chafed at conklin's version of moneyball so he would run a whole bunch of stats what does this team do when it's third and one? What does this team do on on you know first, deep in their own territory? What do, they, they came up with, you're not going to come up with every parameter. People can possibly remember that, but they came up with enough of them. and this this linebacker is uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, chafed and chafed and chafed about it, eventually adapts to the system and uh, sort of subconsciously adapts to it. Years later, he's traded and he's playing for a different team, and it's third and one, and he says, all right, what do these guys do on third and one? And he goes, oh, my God, I don't know. Conklin was right all these years. And actually reached out to him and said, hey, you were right. Sorry I gave you grief about it. It's it's one of those things. But stop and think about how many sports haven't adapted that and how much money is involved. It's really quite fascinating. So speaking of not adapting and and how much money is involved – um, I, I love this data point, which uh, my head of research Mike Batnick uncovered, and it, it's fascinating. Since two thousand and five, actually from the period from two thousand and five to two thousand and thirteen, approximately fifty thousand new global funds were launched. That's not total funds; that's the number of new mutual funds, ETFs, hedge funds, etc. were launched. Fifty-seven thousand. It's ten times the number of of stocks. In the US. What does this tell us about our abilities to distinguish between skill and luck?
0: Well, I don't know if it's about skill and luck as much as it is about um, the idea of marketing and raising mm-hmm. assets. And, uh, you know, bef- uh, we talked a few moments before about the really powerful trend, and it's accelerated since the financial crisis of a move into passive investing. Mm-hmm. And some of that's been index funds, but a lot of it's been ETFs as well. And uh you know, But this, not
1: but there isn't fifty seven thousand ETFs. No, but
0: there are other so there are funds. So so I think there are a couple things that you know, this is what Charlie Ellis talked about, the difference between the profession and the business. And the profession's about delivering, and and Jack Bogle and others, the profession's about delivering excess returns. The business is about selling people what is in demand today. Mm-hmm. And going back to even 05, what happened is we had a huge run-up in energy. Guess what happened? Zillions of energy funds sure. got launched. We had gold that was hot for a while. What happened? Zillions of gold funds got introduced. You know, then then markets go down. People go, I need dividend, I need yields. So now you have yield funds, right? So- Whatever worked in the last two or three years is what people want to do now, and the marketers are more than happy to accommodate that. And that's the business of finance. That's the business of finance, right? And so that you know, so I mean, these on on the yeah, I, you know, I don't even know what to say about a statistic like this. It's, it, it seems mind blowing, and you know, not not a lot of these guys can have a lot of assets and so forth. But that is marketers trying to take advantage of recent asset class performance with an overlay probably of this move to passive. And, and to me, so, so, and right. And for investors, I think for our listeners, the main thing we want to emphasize is that, is just be very careful about, uh, you know, what has done well in the last two years is, you know, again, what you're going to want, you're going to say, hey, gee, these guys made a lot of money. Be careful about that idea because if it's done well, Uh, or it's gone out for any particular set of circumstances, it's very unlikely those circumstances will repeat in the next 24, 36, five years, or
1: whatever it is going forward. Mean reversion (laughs) is a... uh, Alive and well. Yep, to say the least. Um, So another quote of yours I I really like, uh, along with the suggestions you have uh, for dealing with this is, different levels of skill and of good and bad luck are the realities that shape our lives, yet we aren't very good at distinguishing between the two. So that leads to uh, the immediate question, how can we improve at at separating and identifying skill from luck, not only amongst ourselves, but at the people we hire, whether it's uh, an investment manager or someone in a firm, uh, a business? How can we separate skill from luck as a a personal... Uh, uh, approach to the world of of finance? It's it's an amazing question.
0: Uh, The first thing I would start with is sort of the centerpiece of the book. The success equation is what we call the luck-skill continuum. So you might imagine sets of activities that are all luck, no skill, right? Mm -hmm. Roulette wheels, lotteries, those types of things. You might have said, I have a
1: system for the lottery. I have these numbers. And...
0: <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Yeah, <laughs> and then on the other extreme, uh, all skill, no luck, right? So you know, you think about Olympic sprinters, uh, the best mm-hmm. guy is going to win. Uh, uh, luck may play a tiny role, but for the most part, it's mostly skill. Chess is probably over there, and then you could think about you know how you might even qualitatively place activities on that continuum, mm-hmm. right? And and why you would place them. And I think j- that just that mental exercise in and of itself gives you a lot of uh, insight. And by the way, uh, the, tying into the comment on mean reversion, if you're on the luck side of the continuum, and by the way, even like performance of the markets, our S&P 500 from year to year is basically random. Mm-hmm. It tells you there's complete reversion to the mean. In other words, outcomes that are far from average will be followed by an outcome that's expected to be very close to the average. And 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 when there's all skill, no luck, there's basically no reversion to mean at all, right? We sprint against Usain Bolt. He's going to win every time we run, right? Right. Um, so, so that's another, that's another really interesting. So, so then you say, well, how do we identify skill? A couple things come to mind on this. The first really fat, there's a fascinating strand of research by a guy named Boris Groisberg at Harvard Business School. Mm-hmm. And um, he wrote a book called Chasing Stars. And the idea is that when stars from one organization go to the other, to another, their performance almost without failure degrades. Mm-hmm. Now, there could be a couple reasons for that. The first is just classic mean reversion. So someone's been a star, they've been lucky, and so that doesn't carry over. So, okay, we'll check that one off. But the second was that people massively underestimate the role of their organization in their own success. So They think that they're the one that's carrying the weight, but in fact, it's everything that's going on around them. So that's the first thing is just to be mindful of. Hiring stars seems to be the path to quick success, but the studies on this, especially in the world of finance, demonstrate that that's actually not such a good thing. So the last thing I would say is, when I if I were trying to identify skill, what I would a lot of thi- I would I would really want to do things that get at people's behaviors because mm-hmm. in interviews you tend to skim along the surface and see if you like the person. What you really want to do is press into their actual behaviors, how they actually make decisions. So if I were interviewing a portfolio manager or an analyst, I would truly want to say like. How do you value businesses? How do you think about strategy? Not just high level. Get into the nuts and bolts of how they do that to see what their actual processes are. What they describe their actual behaviors. I think that's the best indication as to whether they're going to continue to do that. So, so that's a couple ideas. First, just the, the overall overarching message is hard, right? And second is if you're gonna, if you do have someone you're trying to talk to, is just to do the as good a job as possible of figuring out their actual behaviors not just skimming along the surface of superficial questions.
1: And you said something else that I I thought was similarly fascinating, which was when you're trying to determine if something is the result of skill or luck, ask yourself the simple question, can you lose on purpose? And I found that to be quite fascinating.
0: I love that and I, you know I sh- I don't want, I don't want to take credit for that either. That came from the poker the poker community but it's an interesting question. I, I pose it to my students. On January 1st of every year, you say, give me 25 stocks. You're convinced will beat the S&P 500. Let's get the list, right? And we're going to freeze it for the full year. Now, let's get a January 1st. Give me the 25 stocks. You're convinced will underperform the market. You're sure. You would short them with your own money. And let's tally up the results at the end of the year. And, and by the way, if you can do the latter, you can do the former, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you could... So, As you know, I mean, your sense on this would be that it's really hard to beat the market. It's also really hard to do worse than the market on purpose, given the same constraints, right? Given the same number of stocks and so on and so forth. You you can do worse by trading. But that's a fascinating concept, right? And that just tells you that investing, again, not because of a lack of skill, rather because of a surfeit of skill, which Mm. means that everything's priced in, it's really hard to beat the market.
1: You know, at the end of the second quarter, end of the first half of the year, there was a, I want to say, Wall Street Journal article- I don't know if this is consistent over time, but they had noted that the first half of 2016, the lowest ranked stocks amongst the analyst community had significantly outperformed uh, the top ranked stocks and the best stocks. I wonder if that's something that's consistent over time.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I would say that seems, that feels very consistent, what we know it to be the value factor, right? Mm-hmm. So we talk about different factors that contribute to returns, and we know that over long periods of time, value factors work. So basically cheap stocks, we could say price to book or whatever it is, and those tend to be unloved. I mean, so that there's probably some relationship between what the analysts don't like and what's cheap, and those tend to outperform. And it's, when we say outperform, we don't mean just you know doing better in the market it's adjusted for risk, right? So mm-hmm. these are, yeah. So that's a really interesting um, observation. And again, it goes back to our discussion about fundamentals and expectations, right? People want to buy what's doing well and they want to sell what's doing poorly and they don't distinguish between what's priced in and what's likely to unfold.
1: And, and you had also written about the morning star, five star versus one star ratings and that funds that are five star come back next year. They're not five star anymore. And the, the reverse is true. Funds that are at the bottom of the scale, the one-star funds, the following year, they're not ones. So what does that tell us about mean reversion? Is this just something that there's no escaping and and that's it in the investment world?
0: Right. So the degree to which uh, investing is a luck-laden activity, and again, over short periods of time, certainly a year, uh, it's got huge doses of luck. Um, as I said, it's on the luck side of the continuum, that's rapid reversion to the mean, right? So the, the the best estimate of the expected value, some measure much closer to to the average of the population. So, yeah, and by the way, I mean, those morning stars, you know, these morning stars, they're forced curves. So the vast majority of company, uh, funds are f- three-star and then the two and four are less and then one and five are the extremes. So, right, the best estimate for a five-star or one-star fund the subsequent years is basically three,
1: and that's roughly what we see. My, my uh, uh, a little digression, there was a study that, I give Morningstar credit for releasing it. Someone said, let's forget about the star rating and only look at one factor. And they went through all the price. The book, PE, if we can only look at one factor, what would it be? And Morningstar themselves discovered, we look at the cost factor of owning that funds. If you know nothing else but buy the cheapest funds, you're ahead of of the right. five star rating. They kind of eliminated their own need for existence. <laughs> uh, I I think they wish that that memory of that would go away, but I seem to bring it up every six months or so. It, it's quite astonishing, isn't it? It is, and
0: that's consistent with everything we've been talking about. And you know, that's that's the other thing is it's interesting when you think about fees. And look, I don't think anybody begrudges paying fees, but you know, when you're paying a fee of let's say for an average mutual fund 125 basis points in a world where the markets up, you know, 10-15% a year as we saw Nobody for the it rolls right off your back. Right. But now when you have effectively zero real interest rates in the states, you have, you know, uh, negative overseas. Never negative overseas and it's hard to see, uh, you know, ex- returns for the equity markets vastly higher, and certainly in the double digits. Uh, Those those
1: numbers feel uh, they sting a lot more. And and then you look around and there are certain Vanguard uh, funds that are six basis points on the admiral institutional clash. DFA also really low fees. It it becomes more and more challenging to justify. Maybe that's why there's fifty seven thousand new funds. (laughs) Something will will get hot and stick. And maybe it's just part of the culling process. Hey, throw it all against the wall see what, what survives, and we could get rid of the rest. Yeah, of
0: and I, I don't think that's, I mean, I think the 57,000 number is obviously a huge number, and that's probably what is is somewhat new. But this this idea of, of rolling out products of what's hot is certainly not a not a new
1: thing, right? So before I get to my favorite questions, I have to ask you one more question uh, that really sums up a lot of, of what we've been talking about and applying it to um, the world of investing. So- We all know who the great managers were, and and we always seem to discover these folks after their best years. Is it possible to identify skilled managers in advance? Is that something that's realistic for the average pension fund, the average institutional investor, or, or are we just always chasing our tail? It's a great question. I
0: think it's really difficult to do, but there may be some things you can do to skew the odds a bit in your favor. So if mm-hmm. I want to be optimistic or give that op- optimistic side of the story, a couple things I would say. The first is going back to a discussion we had a few moments ago, which is, does that uh, investor have a thoughtful process, uh, analytical process and portfolio construction related are they mindful of the behavioral issues and do they have an organization that tends to be the proper type of organization? But there are a couple other things that will also skew your odds in your favor. Um, the first, interestingly, is the age of the money manager. And uh, research suggests that the optimal age for a money manager is in his or her early 40s. Really? So, um, so that's one thing. Another would be uh, if, they've gone, if they're bright people. And uh, as silly as it sounds, uh, people that go to better schools or better SAT scores on average are better investors. Uh, you'd like to see the size of the fund be not too big. Mm-hmm. So we know that size tends to be challenging. so you want to be big enough to have some critical masses and the resources you need, but not so so large that you're moving tons of money around, which makes it difficult. And last one, which I think is still controversial, but, um, But I think it's probably a heuristic for something that is useful, and that's high active share, which is they're doing something quite different, right? So you're paying them. If you're paying someone a fee, you want them to be doing something quite different than, say, the S&P 500 index. And so if you have a couple of those things working for you, the age, they're bright people, the size is appropriate, they're doing something different, and the process seems to be sensible, those probably shade the odds in your favor to some degree. But as you point out, I think correctly... Um, it's difficult to to find and anticipate performance excess returns in the future, for sure.
1: All right. So in the last ten minutes or so that we have, let let's go over um, my standard questions. <laughs> these were not in existence when we first did this two years ago. So um, some of these are kind of uh, kind of interesting. Um, how did you find your way into the financial services industry? You 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 come out of school with a BA, and what made you tack in that direction well can
0: I tell you a very quick funny story uh, about this so I was I went to Georgetown I was a government major had no idea what I wanted to do no one knew I needed a job and uh One of the firms I interviewed on campus was Drexel Burnham Lambert, which Mm -hmm. you may recall was quite a firm, quite a hot firm back in the mid nineteen eighties. So I did well enough in my New Washington interviews. They invited me to New York. Right, this is a big deal. Get my best suit, put my best tie on, and we sit around. All the candidates sit around the table, you know, before the big day of interviews, and they say, "Hey, you're going to have six interviews with different people in our program, and you get ten minutes with a head guy." Right, so obviously you want to be good all day, but. That's the game. a game for your t- for the. T- so I go through the interviews; it's fine. I, I meet the, the the big guy, and you know he's a great guy, really warm. And I sit down, and I see peeking out from underneath his desk a Washington Redskins trash can. Now I went to went to Georgia; the Redskins were good back then. I'd gone to a couple games, so I say to him, kind of offhandedly, "Hey, that's a great trash can," literally. And this triggers this guy's emotional seat. So he goes on about you know the virtues of athletics and you know metaphor for life, how much he loved living in Washington. And my 10-minute my interview becomes 15 minutes of me mostly nodding up and down in agreement with everything he says. So I go back to school. A couple weeks later, get the letter, offer the job. So this is awesome. Start the program. And about three months into it, one of the guys pulls me aside and says, hey, kid, you're doing fine. Just so, well, you let know. It's okay. But I have to tell you that the six people who you interviewed with, who are the core of the interview process, voted against hiring you. <laughs> he goes, but the head guy came down and reviewed our sheets and recommendations and said, override, you have to hire this kid. He's great. (laughs) Right. So as I like to say, my, my career was launched by a trash can, right. Which is quite literally uh, the case. And, and, and thankfully these more formal processes uh, weren't in place at the time because I wouldn't have been hired. So, so that was it. And and Barry, that was a really interesting experience because it was a year and a half long training program that led to be a financial advisor. Mm -hmm. So we did a lot of classroom stuff for a liberal arts guy, tremendous, right. So basic accounting and finance and so forth. And then we rotated through about 20 different departments at Drexel Burnham, everywhere from operations to investment banking, to research, to all the trading desks. So if you were a person that didn't know what your future, what you were about, you were going to find yourself right going sure. through that program. And then I went on to be a financial advisor at Drexel, we called them brokers back then, uh, at Drexel, and was an abject failure at that job. Mm-hmm. Abject failure at that That's a sales that job. job. It's a sales job, and it was it was started in early 1988. So that was on the heels of the crash of '87, and Drexel at that point was in a little bit of hot water. So those were sort of mitigating factors. But basically, I was not good at this at all. So uh, fortunately, I was able to figure out a little bit of what I wanted to do. But that was my uh, my well, that's your origin story. My yeah, exactly. But it was it was in some ways it was a great. I mean, it was a great experience for sure. But knowing what you're not good at uh, was a, a wake-up call too, saying like, I should go off and do something different. So so that raises the next question. So who are your mentors? So in my training program, actually, a guy in my group gave me a copy of a book called Creating Shareholder Value by mm-hmm. a professor at Northwestern named Al Rappaport. And I was uh, you know, a liberal arts guy. And these guys are talking all this finance jargon. It was way over my head. And actually- candidly didn't make a lot of sense. That book was the first book that really made sense to me. And 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 Rappaport said three things that to this day remain at my core. And, and I would say he's not only a, a mentor, he's a dear friend and a co-author and so forth. The first was that it's not about accounting numbers, it's about economic value, which is really important. And we mm-hmm. forget that lesson, but it comes, it rears its head from time to time. Second is that valuation requires uh, understanding both finance and competitive strategy intimately. So they're not valuation and strategy are not two separate activities, which is how we teach them in business school, by the way, but really should be joined at the hip. And the third was chapter seven called stock market signals for managers. And it was the argument that stock prices reflect expectations mm-hmm. and that a manager just investing in a way that earns a cost of capital isn't going to get you excess returns. It's beating what the market believes and that for me was a huge revelation, right? And he was his target was corporate executives, but the relevance for investors was obvious. So I started emulating a lot of the Rappaport techniques, which are basically standard finance techniques, and a lot of my research, including deep dives on competitive strategy and a lot of this valuation work. And again, that's how I got to I got to meet him in the early nineteen nineties, so about twenty five years ago. And from then we we sort of cultivated. So he's he's been tremendous. The other guy for me um, has also been Bill Miller, and you mentioned mm-hmm. I worked with Bill for nine years. But even going back to the early nineteen nineties, one of the early, and this is before he was the famous money manager, right? Beat the S and P five hundred fifteen, 15 years. So this years. is before. This is before. This is just a, as that was getting a going. streak, highly unlikely, random. Yeah, it, it won't. It won't get. I don't think that one will be broken. But but he's also a guy who's uh, you know very valuation focused, very widely read guy, very multidisciplinary guy. Um, and you know a wonderful guy to to just talk to and learn from. So those are a couple of guys that certainly stand out um, in terms of in terms of mentor. But Rapp- in terms of actually understanding the business and thinking about value, Al Rappaport stands
1: above all for me as, as just a hugely deeply influential uh, person. So let's talk about books. We we've mentioned a number of different books. Uh, what are some of your favorite books? Be them be they investing tomes or otherwise. Just besides yours, sure. Okay, okay. Oh, sorry. Specifically, <laughs> besides, it goes
0: without saying, right? So, um, look, I, I mentioned already Al Rappaport's book, Creating Shoulder Value, um, which was written in 1986, the original version of it. A couple other books that for me have been uh, tremendously valuable. Um, Mitch Waldrop's book on complexity. So this is the history of the, of the Santa Fe Institute. So that introduced a whole slew of ideas that were we, uh, wildly influential for me. Love uh, Robert Cialdini's book, influence the psychology mm-hmm. of persuasion. That should be a must read, especially for young people. Peter Bernstein just was whatever the best. he writes. And so yeah. whatever he writes, but the two I would mention would be against the guy. I just read that this summer, you know,
1: loved it. Can't
0: get enough. Right. Right. And you, loved and it. you should reread that. And capital ideas is also terrific. Um, and then a couple more, you know, another one that's a little bit off the radar for the investing world is John Gaddis's book, The Landscape of History. Really? And Gaddis is a professor of history at Yale. And um, this is a night, nice, it's actually a series of lectures that are written in a book. And it's the craft, it's about asking the questions about what is the craft of history. And I think what's so interesting to me is that many of those ideas are ideas that spill right over to the world of investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, an, as, an, as an analyst or portfolio manager, how do you craft stories? How do you understand causality? How do you uh, grapple with complexity? So Gaddis, a wonderful and it's, a, it's a really interestingly written book. So um, you know, and then the other one I would just mention is is E.O. Wilson's book Consilience. We may have talked about that before, but we have not. E, e, Ed Wilson is a he's a criminologist. He, no, no, no. This is a professor. Different. Yeah, he's a professor at Harvard. He is the
1: world's leading expert in ants. Okay, so I, I'm thinking of a different. Uh, yeah, so e. this a,
0: yeah, it could be. And so, and, and he wrote a book uh, 15, 20 years ago called Consilience. And consilience is one of these old words which means the unification of knowledge. And the argument that Wilson made in this book was hey, we've made enormous strides uh, in the last few centuries by being reductionist and disciplinary. So in other words, the biologists hang out with the biologists and mm-hmm. physicists with business. He said, look, the most vexing problems in our world are standing at the intersections of disciplines. And so for us to really advance, we need this concilience, this unification of knowledge, very much resonated with me. And I, I, I truly believe that. And we talked about, you know, even Danny Kahneman winning the Nobel Prize in economics. As even a though He's never taught an economics class right. in his life, Right. right. But what he's brought to bear is something that's really useful for both psychologists and economists, right? So that intersection, and, and Dick Thaler, who will likely win the Nobel Prize, also uh, operating in that intersection. But go on and on. I mean, what can you learn from a biologist? You know, offline, we were talking about some of the things you listen to about musicians or comedians. Mm-hmm. What can you learn from what those guys do, their creative processes, their businesses that might might apply to your creative process and your business? Got to be stuff that's relevant, right? And so, to me, that whole way of thinking and, and reaching outside of your own little world for ideas that may apply. Um, so, so Ed Wilson's book on that is probably you know the, the the great one.
1: So, my last two questions, and and these are my two favorites. Uh, <laughs> some millennial comes up to you and says, "Hey, I'm thinking about getting into uh, finance. You, you teach at Columbia, so you must have uh, a lot of students who occasionally say." I'm interested in finance. What sort of advice would you give them?
0: You know, so there, there are two sides to this. One, like classical finance or corporate finance, and mergers and acquisitions and capital raising. All that stuff is likely to continue. So that, if they're interested in that, that's fine. More of the questions I get about money management. And, you know, Richard Grinold wrote this really fascinating paper 25 years ago about the law of active management. And he basically said, I'll use English terms instead of Greek terms, Excess returns are a function of your skill times your opportunity set. And that's a really interesting way to think about this, right? Because you could be the most skillful person in the world, but if your opportunity set is not very attractive, you're not going to go very far with your excess returns. So one of the things I just ask to encourage the students to think about is where do you think the next 25 years things are going to be a little more exciting, right? Where where is the is going to reside? My guess is it's unlikely to be the 125th U.S. value manager, large <laughs> right. cap. It's unlikely to be, it's much more likely to be somewhere in emerging markets, maybe even, you know, uh, uh, you know, Africa or parts of Asia. So to me, that would be the thing to think about is if, you, if you're going to lay out next 20, 25 years, where do you think that those um, those excess returns are going to be? The other thing I would say is that, and, and you know, I think you've talked a lot about this as well. We've really moved rapidly towards quantitative methods. Mm-hmm. And the other t- the other thing to think about is, are there ways that we can meld or mm, advance quantitative techniques? So meld them with our, with our what we're doing fundamentally, so, so some blend of those two techniques, or advance on quantitative. So that, if you said, where is the future going to me, I think these quantitative techniques are certainly not going to uh, be rolled back. I think we're going to continue to see that advancement.
1: And our final question, what is it that you know about investing today that you wish you knew when you began in the 1980s? Jeez, a lot of things. But the first
0: is, I mean, we really have the complexion of the of the market has changed a great deal. When I started 30 years ago, indexing was less than 1% of assets under management. By the way, we looked this up. The equity US equity mutual fund industry, assets under management in 1986 were $135 billion. Wow, that's amazing. It's just mind-boggling that's, in 30 that's, years, that's, right? Well, decent-sized yeah, fund today. decent-sized fund today. Isn't that remarkable? So the whole complexion's changed a great deal. But there are a couple things that I would note. One is that that phenomenon. So we've gone from basically a standstill to 35%-ish, something like that, that's passive mm-hmm. or index. So that's a big change. The other fascinating change is that um, most funds were single-managed by one person uh, about 75% say 25 years ago. That's now down about 20 to 20, 25%. Most so funds are team. Yeah, yeah, they're team run, which is interesting. That's another really big change in what's gone on. And I think the other thing is just the level of skill has gone up. In going back to our discussion on the paradox of skill, we've never seen more skill than we have today. And that has made it much more difficult to outperform the market. So, I mean, it's it's always exciting, as you point out, because there's always something going on, the world is always changing. What's deeply fascinating about this business is you've never figured it out, right? Because the world is always changing and it requires you to keep up with what's going on. But those are some of the really big changes, the backdrop um, that I think make it all so fascinating. We
1: have been speaking with Michael Mobison of Credit Suisse. Mike, thanks for being so generous with your time. This has been absolutely fascinating. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes and you could see any of the other 100 uh, such episodes that we have had, uh, be sure and check out Mike's white papers, books, etc. You can find that at michaelmobisant.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank uh, the hard work of the team who helped put this together. Uh, Taylor Riggs is my producer booker, Charlie Volmer, and today guest recording engineer David. Uh, Mike Batnick is our... Ahead uh, of research we love your comments feedbacks questions and suggestions be sure and write to us at our new email address mibpodcast at bloomberg.net i'm barry ritholtz you've been listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio